By being racing driver means you are racing with other people. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver. Hey man, how you going? Yeah, just going through the motions. Groundhog Day. Yeah, right. I was going to say, isn't it? I just noticed on Facebook, man, isn't today your uh, 20th wedding anniversary? <laughs> yep. So I've just I been in. Supposed to be like, yeah, taking the missus out or something. Well, we were going to go out for tea, and then I thought, no, I'll do taekwondo, so that's like chewed up an hour and a half, and nah, doesn't matter. Just another day. And now, you, and now you're doing a podcast with me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, you'll have to make up for it on the weekend or something, man. So, lucky she's understanding. Yeah, well, 20 years. Fuck, man. I'm in for, what is it now, 22. So, yeah, pretty yeah, much just... about the same. Becomes pretty, uh, not not mundane, but it's just yeah, it's just another day. It's just not, it doesn't lose its special meaning, but it's because it's twenty years is still pretty impressive. Yeah, like, heaps of people we know, went to school with that, um, yeah, they're not together and they've been married two or three times. And oh yeah, but, yeah, um, mate, I would say most of the people I, I went to school with. Yeah, but the world keeps turning and the days keep rolling by, so it's just another day. Yeah, that's it. And Jen. Gen 3 testing today. I don't know if you followed any of that. No, I haven't seen it. Where was that at? Sydney Motorsport uh, Park? Yeah, yeah, Eastern Creek. Oh, yeah, I still call it Eastern Creek. But, yeah, there was um, quite an interesting day. A bit of shenanigans going on already, <laughs> which I always like find quite amusing. And, yeah, I think the first, like, 12 cars or something were all um, Camaros. Yep. Um, but I actually know someone who was there who's an engineer on a car, and he told me a few things quickly that like first of all no one ran none of the forwards well actually i shouldn't say this because i don't know 100 percent. but what i've been told is that most of those cars didn't run green tires mm-hmm. um and all the camaros ran green tires the other thing is there's no because facebook's already in meltdown over fucking parody and all that shit <laughs> but a lot of people don't realize too is that the the engine package i think on the forwards about 40 40 kilos heavier and they don't have a minimum weight yet that's part of the reason why they're doing the testing so yeah it'll all even out but yeah i I find it yeah there was a few teams basically sandbagging really well (laughs) i expect that to go on no one wants to show their true hand yeah that's it man i wouldn't wouldn't be motor racing if there wasn't some kind of shenanigans no that's right (laughs) so yeah oh well thanks for coming on anyway man appreciate it i was um yeah so i'm doing a little series um basically on grassroots motorsport and I've done, you know, I've got one I've done on uh, Formula Vs and with Maddie Harriet yep. and uh, I've done one on uh, Excels with Gordon and that was like really good. He gave some good info and the first one, which is actually going to be this one, um, I wanted to do on karting and, you know, I was thinking like, cause I'm a, you know, slightly overweight middle-aged man with a bit of coin <laughs> behind, with a bit of coin behind me. So I was like, I need someone who's, got a more realistic uh, view of uh, carding costs someone who's got a bit of a kid so yeah i thought of you straight away man so i appreciate that yeah no that's right so (laughs) basically what kind of what i want to do is go through well so what we'll do is we'll go through chassis engines tires spares transport entry fees and then anything else um that you kind of think and it'll be good actually because like it'd be good to get two different perspectives on it so um so yeah, because obviously you've you're, you've got two kids um, that you and they started in uh, uh, what do they call it now? Cadets. Cadets? Yep. Yeah, cadet nines. When they Correct. started. Yep. 
Yeah, how old were your kids when they started? So Brock was seven when he started. So he, yeah. he started right at the uh, at the entry point. Yeah. So he had a cart and a chassis. Uh, he started back in 2014. Um, yeah. So he had a cart and a chassis prior to him turning sevens just so he could get comfortable with the thing. And we didn't necessarily take it out to the track. We just drove around the backyard and he had a bit of fun and just become a bit more comfortable with the noise and, and that sort of thing that comes along with karting. Yeah, yeah, good idea. Um, That's a good idea. So by the time he came along to the track, um, it wasn't a completely foreign experience for him. Yeah. And then by the time my daughter came along and started racing, Brock had already been racing for a period of time, so she sort of had a fair idea of what was involved and the speed that comes with it and um, the basic uh, protocol that's required and understanding of flags and all that kind of stuff. So that was yeah. the transition was a lot easier for her than a potentially was for Brock. Yeah, yeah, cool. So what did you guys do for a, a chassis at the start? Did you buy new or did you go secondhand? No, so to start off with, we bought a secondhand chassis. Um, I bought the chassis separate to the engine yep. um, just because of the right chassis came up at the right price, um, which was a $500 chassis, so it certainly wasn't anything to uh, write home about, but it certainly got him on the, on the track. And we bought a, a Coma engine because they were the – engines to use at the time so they were the sw80 sw90 or yeah, yeah 80. sw80 yep so they were a pull start with a uh, with a cord yeah um quite quick and quite reliable until the yep. cord breaks and of course the <laughs> cord, cord only breaks when you're on the grid ready to go out yeah yeah there's a little trick to them my mate gav pulled them down and um we had one as well he pulled it down i won't go into it now but yeah there's a bit of a trick to fixing that cord because they do grab Yes, um, but yeah. yeah, so going back to the chassis, so you bought second hand, um, and is that what you would kind of recommend for someone getting into it? Well, it depends on the age group of the person getting into it. So um, as a, a seven-year-old, the, the path we went through, I'd definitely recommend a, a second-hand chassis. Um, there's plenty of people that go out there and, and buy new, and there's nothing wrong with that, but the chances of the, the kid potentially not enjoying it as much as they did um and it's, it's a learning curve so you could go and spend 10 you know, big dollars on a yeah. chassis and they're still potentially at the back of the field because they haven't got the concept of the the racing line and the flow of the engine and the, the self-confidence yeah so, there's another thing there too i reckon um like obviously so first time around for karting for me i bought second hand mm-hmm. um and second time around i did buy second hand as well but it was basically a new chassis and i think there's an important thing to mention to people there that if you buy, how do I describe this? If you, I think you'll know what I mean when I say this. If you buy new, right, there's certain things that you don't discover until it's not too late, but there's certain things you don't learn along the way. Whereas if you buy secondhand, you kind of learn the process of the setup. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And the window on a new cart, the, the setup window, is substantially larger than a cart that's done a lot of track time, had a lot of stress put through it. Um, yeah. and you don't necessarily um, learn the increases of yes. how a car set up with a, with a brand new car. Yeah. Um, it's probably a bit more consistent with a new chassis, but I, I would still recommend, even for an adult, to potentially get into it. I'd, I'd go second-hand gear. There's a lot of good second-hand gear out there that's not necessarily five years old or, or greater. Um, a lot of drivers and a lot of teams tend to turn their chassis over fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, 
And there's a reason for that because a, a, a new chassis with a lot of flexibility is potentially going to be quicker. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, um, yeah, it's a good, good advice for people there um, because, yeah, there's... There's, there's definitely an advantage for new, but I think if you're starting out, you're better off second. And the other thing is it keeps the budget down. So you're looking at, to give people an idea, so brand new adult chassis, you're looking at five or six grand, basically four to six for a roller, three to sort of four or five for a cadet junior car. And then mm-hmm. secondhand, obviously, you can pretty much half that. Um, like I got a gold, you know, uh, gold star state title winning chassis for just under three you know so the other thing is the chassis i don't know what you think but i think the motor to me is more important than the chassis because the chassis are all kind of roughly the same and like you said you know they they, they even the second hand ones that get a bit of use it's not like a second hand flogged out motor would you agree with that yeah definitely um with a lot of the engines sorry a lot of it, the chassis and particularly for people that aren't necessarily um have a great knowledge of the sport, but all of the chassis are exactly the same underneath the coat of paint. Yeah. So it's the chassis is, is something that's very um, suited to a particular driver and driving style, and you're not going to know that directly off the bat. So uh, whether yeah. it comes down to the flexibility of the chassis, the brakes that come with the chassis, or, or um, even the, the wheel length and the, the wheelbase, um, a lot of these little things you may not necessarily consider can have a pretty substantial effect on your handling of the car. Yeah. Um, whereas you could have an old clunker of the car, and I've seen it. I've, I've, there was a gentleman in our club who had a, an old Arrow, which is a um, DPE chassis, and it had that many cracks in it. It had six hose clamps holding it together to keep the... Uh, Shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he was as quick as anybody. I would recommend you potentially invest in a engine or a fresh, a fresh engine yeah. and an overpriced chassis. Yeah, good advice. Yeah, so, well, there's a good way to lead into engines then. So, um, look, the, the price on engines kind of obviously varies, um, you know, between uh, classes and, um, like, looking on, uh, I think, uh, oops, let me pull it up there. So, an iAmy, um, so they go for just over four grand, brand new, but... Yeah, I think I paid, uh, I want to say about 28 for mine. That was second hand. And um, I want to get your advice on engines. But before I do, I want to tell a little, a little quick story about motors, um, which is some good advice for people. Something I learned um, um, actually racing slot cars. Funnily enough, I used to race slot cars at a national level for quite a few years. Actually raced um, in Adelaide at the nationals twice. And um, one thing I learned during that is there's motors and there's motors. And um, I'll tell a little story real quick. So um, nobody really kind of knows why, right? But you can make a whole bunch of motors and make them exactly the fucking same, right down to the thousands and all the rest of it, right? But when you put them on the bench, the difference between the fastest one and the slowest one, depending on, like, motors and, you know, all the rest of it. But you're looking at anything from, like, seven up to like high 20%, right? And when I got into racing slots, right, um, I started realizing, because I bought a little dyno for my cars, mm-hmm. right? And like the good thing about slot car motors is like they're sealed cans, right? But they're super cheap. Like some of the classes I used to race, they're literally $15, $20 motors, right? So I, what I was doing was, and I got this trick off someone else, don't worry, I didn't invent it. 
I'd go and buy like 30 motors, man, off eBay, right? <laughs> and I would bench test them all. And Jason, it would fucking shock most people if they saw the difference between the quickest one and the slowest one. I'm talking average probably 15 20% up to 30%, right? Now, the same thing happens with go-kart motors, right? But here's the thing. Most of the kart motors that come into the country only get into the hands of a few people. And I'm not, you know, throwing mud at those people because obviously they're going to do what we would do too, right? If we owned a kart shop, right? Those good motors, you put them on the bench, right? Where are they going? They're going to your mates, they're going to your team drivers, that kind of stuff. So I, my advice to people is look for a motor that's got pedigree, right? Like, don't just buy something. The first time around, I bought a few kart motors when I raced karts back in the 90s. I just kind of bought whatever, you know. And then I sort of realized, yeah, there's motors and motors. And as you know, in karting, there's like, you know, tents is really what it comes down to. You know, I'm I'm at the point now where I'm looking for two tents on every corner to get to the front. That's how far off I am, you know, from the front. So don't think that one or two tents isn't going to make a difference because it fucking is. So, um I went looking for a motor this time and approached it in a different way. And like, I just, I'm just going to read quickly, like my engine resume, just to give people a rough idea of what my idea of a good motor is. So I got this motor from uh, state champ at the time, my mate, good mate, Daniel Sprague, and he bought the motor from Queensland. Um, so 2017, it was P2 qualifier at the Australian karting round of Monato with Jace Matthews at driving. Um, the year after, it was on pole at the X30 Asia Challenge in Singapore with Jace Matthews driving again. It was first in the Queensland State Series at Round 2 Bundaberg with Geordie Macron driving. Um, then the engine came to WA. It won the Gold Star Round at Geraldton, Coburn, Wanneroo, Bunbury, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I could go on. There's a lot more to it. But if you look at an engine resume... Most engines won't have that kind of pedigree. And uh, I just think, you know, I don't know what you think, but I think that's good advice for people like, you know, if, you, if you're on a budget, obviously just grab an engine. But if you want to, if you kind of want to do okay, which is what I wanted to do this time, you've got to look for something that's got a bit of pedigree. What do you think about all that? Yeah, so what you're saying is correct. Um, and it's the old story, you get what you pay for. And yeah. so if you get it, if you're buying a proven engine, you expect it to perform and yeah. you're putting yourself in the best possible situation to get the results that you're potentially looking for. But on saying that, that's only if you're necessarily, if that's your goal and you want to become a regional state national champion, then that's fine. Yeah. If your perspective is simply to go out with some mates and have some fun and, or, or be a club level racer and be competitive at a club level, club level, you don't necessarily have to go and pay the big dollars. Um, there are people that get lucky with brand new engines. Um, so sometimes you're better off starting with something, a complete clean slate. Yeah. As opposed to something that's potentially been flogged out and towards the end, end of its life. Because if you buy something that's had a lot of work done to it, obviously the piston size is going to get larger and larger to the point where it needs a complete re-sleeve. Yeah. Good um, so point. then, you, then you potentially lose all that pedigree uh, because it's basically a complete rebuild from the ground up. So. Yeah, and I think it's um, going back to what you said about chassis. You kind of want a motor that's like, I reckon it's proven, but it's only a couple of years old. So it's not too old, like you said. 
Um, and even like, you know, I'm really, really club racing, but still, let's be honest, right, you don't go racing to, to make up numbers. Everybody wants to do as, as good as they can, not necessarily winning, but yeah. And that's actually part of the reason. I spoke to a guy in Italy years ago, right, and he told me that um, work had been done on trying to get karting in the Olympics, right? And part of the reason why it's probably never going to happen, right, is because they just can't build motors all the same. <laughs> like even though they try and try and try and they've done heaps of testing and he reckons they're getting it down they're slowly getting the percent down to more like three to six percent kind of difference but you're still looking at three percent and as you and i know that's like that's a big difference especially when you're running at the front yeah so as far as chassis go like you were saying the newer the chassis the better chance you have of getting some longevity out of it and i would if you're not going to buy new you aim for something that's two to three years old yeah. But on saying that, I've uh, I had a breakout of karting for a while. I came back and raced a regional round in a chassis that was eight years old and it hadn't been on the track for six years. Uh, it was in it with an engine that has was eight years old, and basically I just cleaned a little bit of um, carbon build up away from the the internals. And at a regional meeting, I still managed to finish third. So it's. The chassis, as important as it is, it's not the the bread and butter of your, of your performance. Um, yeah. So you want to spend your attention on the engine, really, don't you? Potentially, yeah. Um, yeah. But again, if you've got the absolute gun engine, you go and buy a top dollar engine, and you don't know how to get the most out of it, you're still oh, not yeah. going to be at the front. There's no guarantees yeah. in, in racing in any aspect. So you can have a brand new chassis, a proven engine, and until you've got your head around the uh, physics and what's required and how to set up the car, you could still be tail ending around just yeah. learning as you go. So yeah, is one of those very um, surprisingly, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for? It's, it's difficult to understand just how some micro changes can have a large effect on the handling of a chassis. Yeah. Um, now, as a parent who's got a couple of young kids in it um, initially I went fishing for that information when my son was was racing and I would come in and he'd be towards the back end of the field and you'd ask him how did it feel and as a, as a kid all you want to do is please your parents so you go it, it feels great and so, well <laughs> it kind, kind of looked like it was washing out through the corners or it wasn't turning in and was it getting in too much understeer yeah, yeah, it was. Do you know what understeer is? Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, do you think it was getting oversteer? Yeah, it, was de- it definitely had some oversteer. So <laughs> no matter what you asked, it took a long time for me to decipher what exactly my son was trying to give information back to me that I was looking for. And and he's at the stage now where he can hop in it and go straight away, it's it's understeering and we need to do this because he's, he's learned over the years the process. And that, that's come with bum in seat time. Yeah. Um, nothing substitutes that. Um, you can sit there and study YouTube videos and read technical data until you're blue in the face. Bum in the seat time is really what's going to make a driver quick and more importantly, consistent. Yeah, man, a couple of awesome points there. And I think like that's one thing I wanted to tell people too during this is like when you get into karting too, right, you sort of take advice from other people, but you got to be really careful and you got to be wary of that because I've found that the only way to really figure it out is to figure it out yourself because what works for some people 
may not necessarily work for you. And all these things that we're talking about, chassis, engines, tyres, we're splitting hairs because what you said, there is just no substitute. The number one thing that's going to make you go faster is just more laps. Mm -hmm. Simple. That's it. So, yeah. All right, cool. Well, um, moving on to tyres. Yeah, go. Sorry, just to emphasise that. Yeah. Again, laps out there by yourself. You can be doing 100 laps a day and you'll, Ooh, you'll yeah. get to a point where you will stop improving because you, you've hit a plateau yeah. and you're making the same mistake without realising it, lap after lap after lap. So getting in amongst a, a, a class or following somebody or having the confidence of, of someone pushing you from behind, yeah. that's where you'll really make up the, the – it seems like microseconds, um, yeah. but that's that's the – the biggest benefit you'll get is being out there with people, learning different lines, learning different braking points, learning different turning points, and then you'll see how the card in front reacts, and then you'll be able to take that knowledge oh, on board man. and better yourself. It's so much easier to like follow someone. Like my, my lap times are generally the best. Like in the first couple of laps, when I'm sticking, because I can generally stick with the front guys for sort of like three or four laps and then they start pulling away. <laughs> and it's like when I'm following them, my lap times aren't too bad. And then I'll just make a tiny little mistake and they just like pull a gap. But yeah, you, you're dead right. Practice is, is one thing. And then the other thing I tell people like, you know, when you get off your P's too, right, like don't be scared to be to start at the front because, you know, you're going to shit bricks if you're like running tag one, two, five, and you've got 16 guys behind you. But trust me, you know, um, letting those guys get through the quicker guys and then following them, you're going to learn so much more than just, you know, cutting laps on a practice day. And there's, there's plenty of drivers out there who are quick and they know how to lead. But once they get in a field, they don't know how to pass. Yeah. So, again, that's another aspect. And you see it in all forms of racing from uh, go-karts right through to track days through to... Uh, digital esports, they know how to lead, they know how to put in a quick lap, but they don't yeah. know how to drive in traffic. Yeah. And they don't know how to pass people. They will just, whether they dive bomb in or they outbreak themselves, there's a number of different scenarios, but it's a skill all in itself. And if you can master that, then that helps you become more of a complete driver, I guess. It sounds a bit cliche, but it couldn't be more true. It's No, you're spot on. And look, you know, my mate Gav, who's my um, mechanical engineer, he's, <laughs> we got a joke, right? Because I'm not too bad, but I'm not one of the quickest guys. Um, so he's got a joke, you know, whenever we go out, he says to me, he says, show him your racecraft. <laughs> and that's his way of saying, you know, you're not that fast, but fucking stay on the black stuff. And, you know, so last year, obviously, as you know, like I came back to karting and had a goal to like um, two or three year goal sort of plan to get to the front just at club level. And it happened in one year and really... Uh, the main reason, you know, I won out of 27 guys was because I had no DNFs all year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably, you know, sacrificed a bit of pace at times to make sure. But, you know, there was still half a dozen tires, times, man, when I hung fucking two wheels out in the dirt. And when we looked at the points at the end of the year, if I had one DNF, man, I would have finished second overall. And look, second might sound cool to some people, right? But you and I know that I would have been fucking filthy, man, if I had finished second when I could have won it, you know. So, yeah, yeah what you're saying there about the racecraft, I'm, I'm not that quick, but I'm good in traffic. And so you got to you got to play to your strengths. And my times are getting better anyway. It's just more seat time. But, yeah. But it's the old saying, and anybody who's listened to this podcast will obviously have a, a passion for motorsport, but to finish first, first you must finish. 
and it can't exactly. be more true because again cliche you can win you can't win it on the first lap but you can lose it there's plenty of them we can go through um oh yeah that's we, how i get half my points man because they all want to like go hard in the opening lap with cold tires and brakes and shit and five or six of them go off and <laughs> you know i'm just i come through thanks for, <laughs> thanks just give for them a little wave and yeah. I'll, I'll see you at the ingrid boys that's it yeah all right man so um moving on to tires which yeah. um I find this is this is going to be an interesting conversation between you because I'm fine. We, we've already sort of talked about this a little bit, and I found that my experience with these tyres, with the Leconts, um, you've got to be careful how you say that, <laughs> um, the new ones, uh, it's been quite different to you. And so my experience has been, um, and I think what it comes down to, so to explain to people, I think they change the tyre about, is it every three years? It depends. Sometimes it's a three, some, sometimes it's a five-year contract. Yeah. So, so the old Dunlops were a bit harder, uh, and the new the new compound is is definitely stickier. And Correct. it's I've kind of found that like it's oh man, it took me twelve months to learn the tire. And I know a lot of people say, "What the fuck, twelve months?" But like I know you understand what I mean when I say that. And because we had to run it in all different conditions, and so mm -hmm. what my mate Gav does is every time we go out, he takes the track temp, the tire temp before we go out, and the tire temp that we come in now. We're the only people on my club grid, right, out of 10 or 15 carts that are doing that. And we, and it looks a bit, you know, stupid. But the reason that he does it is because he's building up a database. So now he's got a graph, right? So we just can look at the graph. We don't even have to um, take the temperatures anymore. We just know, oh, if, it, if the track's 55 degrees, right, this is what pressures we run because it gives us this temperature. And I'm sort of finding that these tires, you gotta really push them hard. Like to get the best out of them, you gotta really, really work them hard. And the interesting thing was, I learned something last round too, cause we just had our first round, pick up. Man, my advice on these LeCons, right, is whatever you do, do not go offline. And that means on the out lap, while you're racing and even on the inlap, because what happens is, uh, you, I don't know if you agree, but on the, so on the old Dunlops, I used to find the pickup would flick off. Whereas on the Leconts, it's the pickups working its way back into the tire, which was affecting my lap time. And I had a couple of, you know, I had to get out of the way for a crash and got some big pickup, man, it took us like three heats and a heat gun, which you're not allowed to use <laughs> at the track. We had to wait till we went home, but we, we carry a spare set of uh, rubber. But I pretty much like, because every, after every meeting too, Gav measures the depth, how much we've worn. We had a meeting, right, where we put on rubber and we were like, what the fuck? This is like, what's going on? And it took us a while to figure out, yeah, it's the, it's the pickup. You've got to be super careful. The other thing is I'm working the fronts okay um, and I'm getting all the pickup, the licorice strips like flicking off them. But the rears, I haven't really been working the rears enough. And like at my local track, so the fast guys are doing low 37s, right? And my best laps are like sort of high 37s. But the difference between a low 37 and a high 37 in terms of work in the tyre is like they're going through tyres every two or three meetings. I, I Last year, if I didn't damage any tyres and there was no wet meetings, right, I could have done virtually the whole year pretty much on one set. And I know that that's like people go, what the fuck? And uh, look, you know, you've got to remember two people. Like, I'm not running at the front and I'm not running at the front at a state level. If you're running at the front at a state level, you are going to go through tyres quicker. But I'd say for a guy like me, not bad pace, not fast, not slow in the middle, two sets of tyres would probably last you all year. Now, I know your experience with those tyres has been a lot different. So can you, yeah, tell us a bit about that? 
Yeah, so over the course of the last seven or eight years, while my son's been back involved, we've been through a number of different contracts with a number of different tyres. So we've raced Bridgestones, we've raced Dunlops, and now we're on these LeConts. Um, I'm potentially going to say something that's not very, um, it's not, not necessarily not favourable, but I believe the tyres are too soft because a lot of these, particularly the kids and newcomers to the sport, uh, learning to drive on a super sticky tyre yeah. and they don't learn how to drive properly because the thing just has grip and they tip it in and it's almost like a slot car and they come out the other side. Oh, man, I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I I really think um, the harder tyres, the harder compound tyres that these drivers have, particularly it, it, it's, a, it's a hard one to, to manage because you've got club-level drivers, you've got regional drivers, who and state level who float between all three and you yeah. don't want to have a set of tires that you practice at or you race on a club day and then go away to a national to a, a larger meeting and have to a buy new tires b learn a new compound and how the tires react and all that kind of stuff um but it's really beneficial if you are able to learn on a hard tire because then you learn to appreciate what good grip actually feels like and yes. you can you can notice the difference between a bad tire and a good tire well if you're running on soft tires all the time and you put on more soft tires that uh gap between the grip level that you're experiencing really diminishes yes so i'm not a big fan of these tires it's Man, I'm, uh, I'm so I'm, glad you said that because the feedback that we're getting the guys that I race with, and they're all saying the same thing. It's too mm -hmm. grippy. And a couple of reasons why. Also, man, what you said, it makes them like they're on fucking rails. Like, because I didn't race carts for like about 20 years, right? I went away and did other stuff and came back. Fucking hell, Jason. It blew my mind, man. The Gs are just fucking off its head. Like, yeah. you cannot describe to someone what the grip's like until you get out there, right? The other thing is it makes it too hard to pass. The other thing is it's too physical. And I'm finding it's putting people off. We had quite a few dudes at the club last year. They came, and when I say dudes, I should say older dudes like my age, 50, you know. They yep. do one meeting and they go, holy fuck, because they're gassing out their ribs. And that's mm -hmm. even my problem, man. Halfway through, normally the final, I just gas out. And I've got to back off about a second a lap just to save my ribs. Now, we're doing things to fix that new seat and other stuff as well. But the problem is the grip. The other thing is it's too hard to pass. You know, even the quick guys that I talk to in my class, they're saying, man, the Dunlop was a lot better because it used to move around a bit and, you know, you could actually, like, set up a manoeuvre. Whereas now, like, there's so much grip, man, that it's actually making it really hard to pass and the, and the carts are just on rails. Yeah, when the tyres have a lot of grip, a lot of grip, they don't necessarily um, put a negative aspect on someone's race when they make a mistake. Whereas if you're on yes. a hard tyre and you make a mistake, you really know about it, and somebody who nails the corner manages to get by at a clean pass, and you've got to work twice as hard to get back in front. So, Man, we've got a hairpin down the back, right, on our track, and, Jason, it's like you don't even really break. You just, like, I've learnt, right, that it's you just kind of dab the brake, and it's not even heavy pressure. It's just like mm -hmm. a light touch. You just tip it in and stand on the gas, and it's fucking insane, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a hairpin bend. You feather the brake just enough to settle the cart, and then you drive through it. So I know exactly yeah. what you're saying because our, our local track has something similar. Um, 
So, what but, you, so with your tyres, can you run us through, like, how many sort of sets are you going through a year? Well, okay. So, if you're a club-level racer and you're running the Leconte LHO3s, which is what you and I are both talking about here at the moment, which is yeah. predominantly a senior tyre, and I think it's a junior tyre as well. Yes, uh, yes. For a majority of the classes. Realistically, you could get 12 months out of a set of tyres. The, the drop-off on a new set initially is quite dramatic, and then it plateaus out, and you don't necessarily lose a, a lot of time. Yeah. We um, found that from our data, just to cut you off. Um, so, yeah, about two-tenths after 100 laps, mm -hmm. 100, 150, and then after that, virtually no drop-off. Yeah, it tends to um, tends to plateau, and you don't notice a great deal of, of drop-off. So... If you at club level racing, a set of tyres for about 265, 270 odd bucks for a set of slicks should last you 12 months and you should be relatively competitive. You'll always get guys or, or, or girls, drivers who throw a new set of tyres at them at a club level and it's not necessary. Um, they may see a little bit of benefit, but in the, the day, you, you got to remember you're racing for a $2 medallion or a $8 trophy. So if yeah. you want to throw in 200 and 80, 300 bucks on a set of tyres for a, get a $30 um, benefit and boost your self-esteem, go nuts. But at club level racing, you certainly don't need to go down that path, um, particularly when you're a beginner. So you take a next step up from there and you start doing regional racing or state level racing. And realistically, if you're going to start travelling away from home and um, going into larger fields, everybody's going to have new tyres to start the race meeting. So that's really where you need to start. If you're going to take that step up to the next level, you've got to allow that in your budget as well. Yeah. And so do you run, because what we do is, so we bought a set, we ran them for a while, then we bought another set, and the first set now become the practice tyres. So even on the day, um, like of racing, the warm-up and the practice sessions and all that, because normally you do two or three runs. So we run those set and then we have the race set. Is that what you do, something similar to that? or? Yeah, correct. So what will happen is uh, at the uh, start of February, we ran a regional race meeting over in Victoria and we put on a new set of rubber. So I will keep that put aside and that will be our practice tyres for the round number two. Yeah. And we, we will put on new rubber again for round number two when it comes racing. Yeah. After those set of tyres are being used for practice, then they will become our club day cart or club day tyres. Yep. And then we'll just just uh, use up their life at, at club day. Again, you don't necessarily have to go down that path into those extremes. It's just how we, we tend to recycle through. Um, and you'll find a lot of people are racing on secondhand tyres at club day. So you're not necessarily losing out. You are just comparing apples with apples. Yeah, and if you've got a junior and he's quick and he's running at the front, it's worth throwing a set for a state round. Like, how many state rounds do you guys have a year? Uh, we just have the one. So oh, both okay. South Australia and Victoria just have one state round. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, they were doing a uh, – sorry, to become a state title holder is the one round. Both Victoria and South Australia have re uh, regional rounds. Um, I think oh, yeah, both sorry, that's what I meant. How many regional rounds, yeah. Yep. So five or six, depending on which series it is, okay, um, yeah. over the course of a year. So potentially between February and November, which is generally the karting calendar, it's every six to eight weeks you have a, a regional round. Yep. So if you're going to go and spend know, $600 in accommodation for the weekend, or let's, let's call it 400 and fuel to travel there and food, 
and entry and all that kind of stuff. You don't want to go to that expense and then run secondhand tyres because pretty much you'll be the only person on the grid and you'll be behind the eight ball from the get-go. Yeah. Good so, point. So, so basically, club, if you're running club rounds, I'd say two sets of tyres a year. And if you're doing state rounds, you're probably looking at five or six. Correct, yeah. Yeah, but knowing you can cycle those five or six sets back into your club day racing as well. So yeah, good point. Yeah, it's a, it's a upfront expense, but then potentially you've got plenty of uh, rubber underneath you to to see out the rest of the year. So and then there's wets, obviously. If it rains, we found the wets like um, this year they're basically good for one meeting. And I ran, I actually ran six heats, so we had two wet meetings. So I ran four heats and then another two. Um, but then after that first or second heat, the front started pushing real bad. So um, the wets are a bit of a anomaly. They're pretty sticky. And like when I say wets, it was the track was wet. Like if there's no water on the track, mm-hmm. um, I would tell people don't run wets. You got It's got to be fully wet. It's got to be fully raining. So they, that comes into it. If, if it rains, you're probably going to blow a set. Um, but yeah, it was worth it for me because I got a second and a third out of those two wet meetings, but I bought two sets of wets for two meetings and I sort of got like a half of one left. So again, wet weather tires for me is a contentious issue. Um, I've been involved in go-karting. I think I just had my first race in 1985, so I'm showing my age. <laughs> and back in the day, we didn't have wet weather tires. You race on slicks, you race to the conditions, and we yeah. didn't have clutches, so if you didn't race to the conditions, That's nobody it. nobody enjoys themselves sitting on the side of the track watching their friends drive around in circles. You've got so to stay you, on. you quickly learn your boundaries and your limits, and yeah. it rewards those drivers. Now we've got wet weather tyres and clutches. There's little um, consequence to a lot of these drivers that just push and barge their way through. And again, not necessarily learning how to drive. They rely on the grip. Um, generated by the super soft tyres and the, the treaded tyres. Yeah. So and because they're super soft, man, I couldn't believe the first time I drove in the wets, I was like, fuck, man, these things hook up unbelievable. Yeah. So the first time we used them was over at Warnable in Victoria, and my son, we chucked them on and we were learning. We didn't know what tyre pressures to run. I think we ran 11 in them at a guess to start oh, with. No. Pump them up, pump them up. Yeah. Oh, yes and no, depending on the track conditions, because Again, in karting, you can't run wet weather tyres unless the track's declared wet, so you can't just go and throw them on it at the slightest drizzle. Yeah. Um, and this was a this was a drying track, and he was flicking the cart into turn one because he saw that's what the go kart in front was doing, and I could literally see bits of rubber, little balls flying off the back of the cart, and I'm saying two dollars, four dollars, six dollars, eight dollars. <laughs> yeah. Each time, I could just just see dollar signs coming off the thing and he yeah. came in and these things after eight laps were absolutely fucked yeah. oh yeah you'll fuck it in one heat on a semi dry track you'll fuck a brand new set of wets and i could tell a quick little story so when i did run my first meeting wets asked my local cart shop harvey from Cartmart, shout out to harvey and he said to me he gave me some good advice he said if the track's fully wet right he was like pump them up like pump them fucking right up. And I think I started like, man, I was like running 28. Now to PSI, now to give people an idea, we're normally running anything between about 11 and 14 in the dry, right? And I was like, this is totally foreign. But I was like, he knows what he's doing, I don't. So I pumped them up right now. What it is, I actually won the first heat. And it took the other guys two heats because they all started like on dry temps. They all started 14, right? 
And then they started pumping them up a bit because they just weren't getting the heat into them. And it took them two heats to figure out kind of what I was doing. Because the other thing is, you've got to remember, these guys in the dry, they normally beat me, right? And in the wet, I was catching them and passing them. And they were like, what the fuck? So then they figured out, like, you know, and they ended up coming up to 24. But as the track dried off, so I came down from 30 and I ended up like on 24 at the end of the day. But those two heats where I got the advantage because it took them two heats to figure it out that, yeah, you got to pump them. And when I say wet, the track, it was pissing down rain, man. We got hail, like the track was fully wet. This is not a, if the tracks even got semi-intermediate dry line, you want to be looking like more like around, yeah, it's probably 18 or 20. But yeah, that was a little trick that, um, and Harvey actually said to me, the interesting thing was, right, he said to me, pump them up. And he said, now, Ira, he said, people are going to tell you don't do it and they're going to you're going to walk up and down pit lane and they're going to say you're fucking crazy and he said don't listen to them he said trust me don't listen to them just pump them up and like he said it'll fuck them but yeah then and i found that was the only way to like to like get the heat in but that's a little trick so oh well, that's tires so um we'll keep it moving so next thing uh, i want to kind of talk about is spares um so just sort of like what spares you carry now most carts not always but um, a lot of carts that you buy second hand do come with like generally a few spares but then mm-hmm. you've got to go sort of like buy stuff the other thing is if you spend any time in carting you just accumulate spares like it just happens so i'm curious to know um what you carry in terms of spares and like just quickly so what we carry is we don't carry a spare everything because we actually have a shop at the track so if we do bend a tie rod uh or something like that. Um, we've got hubs and all that, um, steering rod ends, um, but we don't carry a spare steering column. We carry a spare fuel tank. We carry two spets of spare tires. Um, and if our uh, axles, that's the other thing. We carry like a stiffer and a softer axle with a rear setup. Um, and then chains, sprockets, um, your standard sort of stuff. But yeah, I'm just sort of curious to know, do you carry like a whole spare cart or you just carry bits uh i tend to carry bits because i'm running two shift different chassis so realistically i really want to stress if you're looking to buy a chassis make sure you buy something that your local cart shop has spare parts for because that's the time at a race meeting when you're going to need to lean on that person and actually you're relying on them to potentially help you supply those parts or else you're back in the trailer and you're on your way home so Locally, OTK, which is uh, original Tony Cart, it's an Italian chassis or a derivative of, is very popular over here. Uh, the Burrell Cart or Ricardo Cart, they're all the same thing, um, Parallels, and even Cart Republic. But it all depends on your local cart shop, who you're dealing with, who you're comfortable dealing with, um, because there's no point going and buying something that's cheap that will get you on the track, and then you find that you don't have the access to the spare parts. So then you don't actually spend time on the track and doing what you're there to do and enjoy yourself. You're back yep. in the trailer and you've got to order bits and pieces and wait for the next heat. So that's something I really wanted to stress because everybody's going to be different depending on where they live and what their uh, local cart dealer provides and, and sells. Now, most cart dealers that sell the, a particular chassis will carry spares for that particular brand and things like the axles, you mentioned the tie rods, they're the bits and pieces that tend to get bent and are fairly easy replaced, a steering column and things like that, tie rods yeah. and stub axles. A lot of other bits, so you're mentioning sprockets, chains, spark plugs, 
seats, even fuel tanks to some extent, are fairly universal. So they could be um, they could be sourced with relative ease and enough to keep you back on the on the track. So. Um, so what do you actually take in in your trailer to each track each yeah. meeting? So we're running an Arrow X5 at the moment, and we're also running a OTK Xpre. So I've got oh, yeah. tie rods for both. Um, I've got um, axles for both because one's running a 50, one's running a 40 mil axle. Um, yeah. What else have we got? There's specialty tools that I carry, so wheel aligning tools. Um, oh, sniping is, yeah. Yeah, little things like that. Um, of course, we've got microns and I've got spare batteries for that. There's a, a number of different things, but if you ask my lovely bride, I'm always carrying too much stuff. <laughs> but it's no only sense. too much stuff until you actually require it and then, then it becomes handy. So, yeah, um, and it's, a bit carding, it's not really like. I mean, it's not crazy. It's not like you're carrying heaps and heaps of stuff. There's a few bits you need for sure, but it's not like, you know, when I used to race Speedway and stuff, I mean, you basically carry a whole spare car mm. without the chassis, you know? No, we, with karting, you don't don't need to. Um, we don't run spare engines because I'm at the moment I'm running one for my son and one for my daughter. I just haven't got the funds or the, uh, the ability to carry a spare engine for each of those, and then that's yeah. twice the rebuilds you're doing and all that kind of stuff. But as far as chassis components, I carry a number of different spares. Bolts are a big thing because quite often you'll snap a bolt or lose oh, yeah. a nut. So um, pretty generic M8 through to or M6 through to M10 cap head or countersunk bolts. Just and you don't need a lot of them. Just five or six of each kind, and, and that'll be enough to get you through a particular weekend if you're having a bad run. Cables um, as well and fuel line. That's another thing. Yeah, I fuel carry. line, spare accelerator cable. Um, those kind of things, and they're all fairly. They, they sound like they're fairly minim, minimalistic, but again, that could be the difference between keeping you on the track and um, sending you home early. So, but again, oh, any yeah. good cart shop that you deal with should potentially be able to supply the majority of those things. Yeah, but you've just really got to make sure that uh, the chassis you're running is well supported by your local cart shop. Yeah, well, and this probably happens at your tracks too, but um, at my track, right, every meeting. And I mean every meeting, right? A couple of carts in my class go home after a couple of heats because they break something simple and it might just be a cable or something and they pack up and go home. Yeah, I wouldn't suggest that necessarily happens down here. Um, I'm lucky enough to be involved in a small country club. So our club days can be anything between 30 and 50 people. Okay, yeah. And with a little bit of country hospitality, yeah, it's oh, look, not unusual for people to take stuff off their own go kart to put it back on someone else's. Yeah, and I was just about to say that. Like at my club too, right? And it's a great club. Like you could walk up and down pit lane, ask for anything, and you'll get it. But I don't know. People just feel funny about it, maybe sometimes, or they don't want to ask. But I know, like you know, every meeting, man. We'll put it this way: if we start off with fifteen, I guarantee you only ten will make the final. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So. All so, right. Um, um, so, Boot, is there anything else you can think of there with, when it comes to spares? Or no, you can you can easily, like I said, carry a spare set of you have to carry a set of wets, a good set of slicks. You can carry a spare set if you need, but it's not essential. Um, bits that you tend to bend are what yeah. you'll want to carry. So, which you said, like it's mainly the tie rods and the axles. I find correct. Yeah, they'll be the first things to go if you have any any significant contact. So, um, again. 
a bit of backyard mechanics can normally get you back on the track without too much trouble. If it's significantly bent, then you probably have to look at replacing it. But um, there've been plenty of axles bent by uh, a, you know, a trained eye, yeah, as, as opposed to <laughs> sitting on a lathe and making sure it's dead straight. And um, they've gone back out, and managed to compete at a semi-competitive level without necessarily ruining their race meeting. Yeah, yeah. All right, cool. So uh, we're well, moving on to um, just wrapping, wrapping up the last couple. So transport. Um, now, this is the cool thing about karting is the fact that, you know, you can stick them in the back of a ute. And now um, that's not always the, um, you know, the most OG way to rock up to the track because uh, when it comes to trailers, I'm sure you've seen it over there as well. But we've got trailers at the tracks over here, man, that you could like, mortgage your house probably against and you know it's nice to have a good trailer but i tell people you know the trailer never ever won a race so um it's and, and it's cool because you know look if you got the coin i'm not saying you know nothing against people who you know drop 20 30 40 on a trailer um but the cool thing is you know you literally can stick them in the back of a U or a small trailer but obviously you got two carts so i'm assuming you're probably got some kind of like decent trailer setup that's in the middle there yeah, so again, over the years, and I've been involved in karting for, for quite a long time, I've gone from the point where we've seen people arrive with their cart bolted to the roof racks of their little <laughs> Ford Laser or their Volkswagen Bug. Yeah. Um, they they wheel, peel, peel it off, put the thing together, put the side pods on it, because they, they strip all that off for transport. Um, I think there's a gentleman in Adelaide who's still using an old EH Holden wagon. He transports his cart to the track in that. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, right through to a, when I start, got back into it as, as an adult myself, I started off with a 6x4, but realistically, you probably want an 8x5 simple trailer just to make sure you're going to fit in there with your toolbox and your trolley and your bits and pieces. And then the step up from there is a, is a simple box trailer through to a multi-cart trailer with sleeping quarters um, or a basic bunk bed setup, which is where we're at at the moment. Or if you're super serious about it and you've got access there's people arriving in trucks um yeah oh we got a guy who comes in a semi-trailer yeah so <laughs> there was a gentleman down here who was running a cadet cart and he had i'm i'm guessing because i don't know but it would be a I don't know, 36 to 40 foot trailer wow. it was basically designed for speedway yeah um and he had this little 900 mil chassis um cart with the wheel at the back of it um, you could almost play cricket in this thing. It was it was massive, and um, but again, that's what he had access to. Yeah, no, nothing against it. He's just using what he had. Um, but you don't need to spend that. No, not at all. And so, do you mind me asking what your setup costs? Um, so my trailer has had a fair few different variations. We bought it oh, probably 15, 20 years ago for three thousand um, dollars. It's wow. been reskinned. It's been re. It's been added on to. Um, if I wanted to sell it now, to answer your question, we're probably looking at somewhere between eighteen to twenty thousand dollars. But you um, did that slowly over time. Absolutely, yeah, one hundred percent. It's um, it's been a an ongoing project. Um, we've added things to it, like a toolbox area on the side, and we've added doors on the front so we could carry generators and things like that. So. It, and to me, everything's got a home. I've added shelving and there's a, a built-in toolbox, like a, a workshop toolbox. Um, but don't get me wrong, running a, a simple open trailer um, is definitely character building. 
It's just the beauty of having an enclosed trailer is you can take it home, you can unhook it from your car, and everything's still secure. It's not out in the elements in the open, yeah, um, and sure. you know it's locked up. It's a lot Whereas, nicer. Yeah, we've travelled as a family um, in an old back in the day when I was a lot younger. We used to do a lot of travelling throughout uh, Western Victoria in a dual cab four wheel drive Rodeo Ute. Um, one car was piled, cart was piled on top of another with a, a frame that, that Dad made up in the shed, and the toolbox and the trolleys and your helmet and everything was just stacked in around it. Um, <laughs> and it was out in the open, so if it rained on the way to the track, yeah. your ax- axle got rusty. Um, you know, your bearings got wet. You were potentially sitting in a wet seat for heat number one. Yeah. Um, so that there is benefits to having a enclosed trailer, um, but like you you said off um, a moment ago, you can have all the all the uh, bells and whistles, all the gear, and no idea. It doesn't make you any quicker on the track. So. Yeah, it helps. It's one of those things, but yeah, it's nice to have. So. All right. So, um, and then you sort of mentioned before a little bit about accommodation. So I don't travel much to, um, cause I don't do state rounds and stuff like that. So, um, can you give us a bit of idea? Um, cause I'm just doing club runs and the track's like 45 minutes from my house. So, you know, we drive up. So I, I think, you know, probably in a couple of years when I get a bit quicker, I might do some state rounds, but yeah, can you sort of run, run me through accommodation costs and travel for those sort of people who do want to do that regional kind of racing yep so we do definitely do it on a budget um particularly because of the fact we're running two two carts so it's basically two sets of tires two lots of entry two lots of fuel and oil and chain lube and all that stuff that goes along with it it depends on where we're going as to how we attack it so um you can do anything from we stay at the track in our trailer and camp it so the kids have got a couple of swags they sleep underneath the gazebo and my wife and I sleep in the trailer, and my yeah. kids are now, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, they're 13 and 15. Yeah. So they're, they're old enough to stick outside, and that's fine. They're not going to come wandering in because they can hear someone walking past in the in the dark, so that's fine. Um, but because I'm travelling with my wife and kids, facilities at the track's really important. So we want to have a shower, and we don't want to be camping and sleeping on rocks in a quarry because that's some of the scenarios we go to track tracks are quite often built on um land that's not very well sought after hence why the tracks there so one track we go to is in an old quarry one is in a place called buckley swamp so you can imagine what it's like sleeping there mozzies (laughs) oh if that's yeah that's if they're um if you're not surrounded by tadpoles and it's full of water um so it depends on where we go as to how we attack it. So if we're not camping at the track, we've been doing it long enough and it wouldn't take long to, to make some social friends within the scene. Uh, we tend to um, house pool. So there's a couple of diff- different options. You can either rent a house through an Airbnb option or a couple of us just get a two or three room cabin at a caravan park and we share the cost that way. So instead of potentially being away for you know, two nights at $200 a head, you're only covering one night's accommodation because the people you're camping with is is doing yep. the same. Um, so we've been th- and done all those different aspects. So we've, we've stayed in a house, we've stayed in a cabin, we've stayed at the track. So Yeah, and especially I think if you're doing a two-day meet, you really want that, like, shower at night, don't you? Yeah, and we've also travelled um, from the track back home again as well. So depending on where it is, we're lucky enough that the track is actually seven minutes away from our residence. 
Oh, awesome. So our local tracks, we can be there within 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, but if we go away and do some interstate racing, obviously, if it's within 40 minutes, 45 minutes, we've been known to go home because there's nothing quite like your own bed. Of course, um, or, yeah. You know, or a friend's bed. You know, you, yeah. you've got a hot shower, you've got a hot meal, and all that kind of stuff really can add to your enjoyment over the course of the weekend. Because if you leave on a Friday and then you don't get to shower until Sunday, you're probably getting home Sunday night and you're the grumpiest, smelliest yeah. person that you've ever been. Yeah. Having said that, like camping out of the track, there's a certain social aspect to that that's pretty cool too, you know, especially at night. Everyone gets around the campfires and, you know, talking shit. Yeah, there is. And there's, there's a large social aspect to that. And you'd be surprised how many people actually potentially camp at the track. Oh, yeah. At our big rounds here, I'd say close to half. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And there's a lot of people with, with facilities that are self-sufficient. So they've got solar power on their trailers. They've got generators. They've got fridges in their trailers. So, again, yeah. none of that's essential, but it certainly helps keep your cost down. And if you're potentially camping at the track and you're saving yourself $400 for the weekend, that's money you can I reinvest back into a new set of tires for my kids. Yeah. So um, we're still spending it, but we're spending it in different areas. So yeah. we're making some sacrifices yeah. to to benefit the the on track performance. Within um, reason, yeah. Yeah, of course. So there's a couple of different ways you can look at it. Everybody's different, um, but yeah, house sharing is really a, a beneficial yeah, I was way. Cut that's down on great, costs. That's a great point. The Airbnb, yeah. Um, Share a big one. Yeah. So there's different ways you can look at it. So um, yeah, cool. Yeah, a lot of good points there, man. Um, so getting close to wrapping up. So really, the only other thing is, I mean, um, entry fees. And then I just sort of want to ask you if you've got any other costs. So I mean, the entry fees over here, just to give people an idea. So I think cost me like literally about forty bucks for the club. Um, me and then I haven't done state rounds, but they're obviously a bit more expensive. And my license and membership um, for both of those for a year is around about five hundred, I want to say. Um, so yeah, the entry fee is pretty pretty affordable. You can't get much cheaper than that, especially when you start going up the tree and looking at what it costs to nominate in some of the other forms of motor racing that can, uh, you know, like to drop a three sixty sprint car at the motorplex here, it's a it's a grand just to like nominate, you know. So um but yeah, is there any so uh want to touch on entry fees. So I don't know if you could uh tell us a bit about that in terms of state rounds. And then is there any other anything that we've kind of missed that you can think of that would be good info for people? Yeah, so at club level racing and I'm I'm a big club level guy because really go karts is all about grassroots grassroots racing um, and sure. to me that's that's really important so we have a, a number of club members who started off in club level racing they move up to start doing regional and state stuff and then they give the club level a miss and I to me that's quite disappointing because um, club levels your bread and butter it keeps the club alive and that, that's really important because if you don't have those guys rocking up club level racing supporting the club then you don't generate new interest and the club doesn't generate the income that it needs to survive. Excellent um, point, yes. So the other side of the coin is you're putting unnecessary wear and tear on your gear, so whether it be chassis, your engine wear, um, your tyres, things like that. But that's all just part of getting into go-karting and understanding that really gra grassroots and club-level racing 
shouldn't be overlooked because it can still provide some of the best racing. It's where you learn your craft. It's where you really learn the most about yourself and, and the gear that you've got. Um, so you can't forget that if you start to move on to bigger stuff, it's it's critical that you you remember to support where you come from because we've all yeah, been there that, at some point. I see that happening a bit here. Yeah, people sort of move on from the club and then they don't do club runs at all. And it's like... Yeah, yeah, they just disappear and then it's 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 frustrating because you need those club people to. I said to you, you build rapport, you build relationships. Those club people help put the club continue in the form of working bees, the volunteers that run the, the meeting, so officials, people in the canteen, timing, uh, timekeepers, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. These things just don't happen. And when you haven't got the support at club level, it puts yeah. more and more pressure on, on a few and then they get burned out and then all of a sudden you, you're without those volunteers because they step away from the sport or or whatever. So I really yeah. wanted to stress that that aspect because it's, it's vital to... Uh, keeping clubs active and keeping them sustainable. Um, yes. I've gone on a tangent away from your question. So uh, That's person, right. personally back at our club, which is in the lowest region of South Australia, a senior membership is only $70. Um, a family membership is 120 So Wow, that's really good. Yeah, that's yeah, a lot cheaper than you. Yep, you don't have to go very far across the border into Victoria. So you look at some of the Melbourne clubs and they're potentially up around the five $600 a year for membership. So they've yeah. all, all clubs have different costs that they got to um, adhere to. So we're lucky enough that we own our own facilities. So we're not paying rent to council. We're not paying upkeep because our club members uh, yeah. do all that ourselves. So we own our lawnmower, um, all that kind of stuff. We do our own repairs and maintenance to the track and to the grounds and sprinklers and timing systems, all that kind of stuff. So... We haven't got that upkeep, so that allows us to keep our membership down. Uh, licensing is um, dictated by your state governing body. So here in South Australia, I believe the senior license is around two hundred and eighty or two hundred and ninety dollars for a year. Yeah, about the same. It, year. Yep. So it runs from the moment you get your license until twelve months' time. Um, so it's a twelve-month period that that exists. Oh, it's worth mentioning too. You can just buy a practice license too. Correct. If you want to just get your your, your feet wet, um, it gives you the opportunity, insurance-wise, to get on the track and experience um, what karting has to offer before you jump in the deep end. Some kart, some tracks and clubs have their own carts and their own facilities. So we have a uh, we have four different four-stroke carts that we potentially lease out to to drivers that want to get their um, their experience and make that decision before they they leap into the sport. Um, so that's another aspect. Speak to your local club, speak to the members. None of them bite. They'll all be accommodating and they'll all be pretty happy to, to tell you about their gear. Um, most clubs are very approachable in the aspect that you can get right in amongst the drivers. You can enter the pits. Um, you can get up close and ask these questions, which you might potentially think are silly, but that could help you make the decision of what you want to do. So. Yeah, well, it's worth even mentioning uh, at our club. So if you want to rock up and have a go, um, you can actually have, buy, you fill out some paperwork and it's about 40 or 50 bucks and you can actually have a drive after the event's over. They'll let yep. you do some laps while the track's so still come, on. Come, come and try days. Or a lot of clubs host those or, or bring a mate. I think they, they um, publicise it as or they promote it as. Yep. So that gives you an opportunity. And, and 
you'll more often than not get in somebody's own personal car, go out, do a handful of laps, and you'll, again, get a good idea of what's what's involved. But definitely make contact with your local club. Um, Facebook seems to be the most uh, prominent spot to get in contact with people because it's a free form of advertising that a lot of clubs utilise. Yes. Um, again, Facebook's a great opportunity to buy secondhand gear. Um, but potentially use your club to um, to get the information you require. So if you're looking at a potential cart package, cart and engine package, send a member, send that information to a member of the club and they'll go, yes, this is suitable for club level racing or stay clear of it because someone's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Yeah. Um, again, a, a club is more... Uh, recipient, they want to see you come and join the, the, the sport and join their club. They don't want to go and see you spend $3,000 and then rock up on a race day and go, well, mate, she's got the wrong tyres, the engine's been modified, um, you're missing a heap of critical components. I'm sorry, but it's not worth $500, let alone what you paid for it. So Yeah, and something I just thought of then where you were saying that is um, to people when, you know, juniors, obviously, you kind of got the classes and you work your way up. Once you get to senior... You got a few choices, you know, KA, which is the old clubbies and J's, um, but new technology, obviously. And then you've got, you know, TAG, which are air-cooled one two fives, which is what I'm running. And then you water sort cool. of got, yeah, yeah, water-cooled, sorry, I should say. Um, and then you've got your open sort of like we've got, you know, open class and also KZ now and also four-stroke. So my advice to people would be go to your local club, right, and see which classes get the best numbers and go from there in terms of like, because there's no point like running four SS if there's only two years, you know what I mean? If you're going to race, you want to run in a crowd. Um, and my advice, most people end up usually for seniors, they end up going KA or TAG, you know, because they're the two main classes that get the best support. But yeah, just something to be aware of. Like my advice would be don't rock up and go to a club because you'll soon, you know, you'll get sick of running around there by yourself. Trust me. <laughs> Yeah, end of the day, you've got to run to a budget. Above all else, you've got to run to a budget because you can go and buy some gear, and then if you're not running in that budget, you don't end up at yourself at the track. So Yeah, and look, basically one. what it comes down to is if you spend a little bit more, I've found at the start, it's less running costs later. If Correct. you don't spend as much at the start, the running costs tend to be higher. Yeah, so it's like, like most things in motorsport, your outlay cost is probably your biggest... Uh, expense but once you've got the a sh engine a chassis you've got yourself a set of tires you've got your helmet your safety gear all that kind of stuff your gloves yeah, it's bugger all after that realistically to run a club day throughout the course of the year if you're not doing it for 500 to 700 dollars then you're probably doing something wrong um yeah. if you want to take oh, the man, next I, step i step don't know that. yeah that's right it's 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 real, basically you're paying for your entry, your fuel, and then you've just got consumables like chain lube and oil for your fuel. A couple of hundred and, bucks, I reckon, I probably yep. spend each round, yeah. Each round? Yeah, for a club round. And that's like not including buying new tyres. But if you just took like my petrol to drive there, my entry fee, you know, everything included, like, you know, I'd, yeah. I hadn't actually worked it out, but it's like two or three hundred bucks, I reckon, max. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm again, I'm lucky that my track's, 10 minutes away where you've got to travel 45k so your fuel bill is going to be substantially higher yeah. so but even then it's like man it's fuck all really and look if you're 
if you're an adult and you got a job, you know, it's um, it's affordable, you know, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this was because, like, you know, I heard, um, I've heard some bad advice with carding, man, and a couple of, not just one person, but I've heard two or three people say to me in the last 12 months, like, oh, yeah, I thought about carding, but, you know, people tell me, like, oh, it's way too expensive and you've got to spend 30, 40 grand, and I was thinking, that kind of what inspired me to do this because I was like, I don't know what you think, but it's like, that's fucking bad advice. Absolutely. Again, go-karts, motorsport in general is, is can be an expensive hobby, but go-karting is really as much or as little as you want to put into it. So if you're happy to run club-level racing, if you're not the fastest guy out there or girl out there, there's always somebody at the track that's going to be at similar speed. So you might be in a different class, so you might be running a, a light class, but you'll be racing against a heavy. Yes. Um, so don't be disheartened by that. Um, the worst thing you can do is try and keep up with the Joneses because my experience is the Joneses always have more money. Man. So don't, don't fall into that trap. <laughs> I took a lot of satisfaction last year being 50 years old and beating all these guys that were spending shitloads and, man, some of them are like 18, 20, and, man, it's fucking hard work trying to stay ahead of those guys. <laughs> yeah, well, quite often those guys aren't spending their own money. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. It's, so mum and dad are still paying for look, a lot of the bills. The other thing I will say about money, right, and I've said it in the other podcast, money and motorsport just go hand in hand, right? It's just part of it, but money is a problem like anything else, right? And you can always get more money. Money's easy to get. Like, you just go work more, you know what I mean? Um, like, I'm not talking about millions of dollars, but, yeah, for a carding budget, you know, it's it's relatively easy to get. And if you've got the passion and you really want to do it and you get down to a club, like, yeah, the people people will help you out. So, yeah. man, I think that's a pretty good spot to actually uh, wrap it up. Um, um, so, yeah, no, I just I, wanted to... And, sorry, I just wanted to finish by saying, yeah, even if you, you're not at a position at the moment where you're ready to uh, start competing, get along to your local club, put your hand up to be a volunteer because clubs are always screaming out for people to do flags, uh, said do timing, do entries, and it's a great way for you to get an understanding of what the sport can offer, great yeah. way for you to learn and understand and get to know the people in the club. So it might be an 18-month exercise before you're ready to dive into the actual sport itself, but get along, offer up your assistance. It's a very rewarding opportunity, um, and it's the best way to learn about potentially what you are going to need to get the most out of the sport. Or, you know, if you've got a mate that runs, like, go along and run spanners for him, you know, for a couple of meetings. Because that's how I actually got my first drive, you know. I just ran spanners for a guy for a year. And then he was like, well, you know what? I got, actually, I got two carts, you know. And then he offered me a drive, a lease drive. And that's kind of how I got going. Yeah, quite often it's a case of you bring, bring a mate along and you put him in at the cart at the end of the day. And then they get a feel for what's involved. And they think, well, this is, this is all right. I wouldn't mind doing this. So then next thing you know they've got a cart and a trailer and they've joined up and then they bring a mate along to start doing the same thing and then that's how the, the ball tends to to roll and then all of a sudden your club's just picked up a handful of members that it potentially didn't have before so yeah. get out there bring your mates along get them involved um and then all of a sudden you've got yourself a good bunch of guys and girls that you're out there racing with and it becomes a lot more enjoyable the other thing is man how much fun is it Oh, it's, look, to be honest, it's been a long time since I've had my bum in the seat because my focus is on the kids. Um, but I started the day after my seventh birthday. So go-karting is really available from anyone from the age of seven to race competitively right through to the other side of 70. 
So Mate, we had a guy here at the state round at Albany last year, 65 years old, in tag medium, and he set the fastest lap time of the race. Yeah. <laughs> 65 years old, man. Yeah, well, I don't – there's a gentleman over here from Horsham, um, and a lot of people from this side of the border will potentially know who I'm talking about. Um, and I don't want to guess at how old he is because I'll probably have to see him at the next uh, regional <laughs> round and look him in the eye. He'll probably bot me one. Um, <laughs> but he is – he's out there um, – and he is setting the pace against kids that are 17, 18 years of age. And every year, a new group of kids come along and they're quicker. And he just keeps raising the bar year after year after year. And realistically, we all know it can't go on forever. But at the moment, he is just, that's yeah. what's pushing him along to keep going and uh, to keep at the front of the field. It just goes to show, man, it can be done. You know, like for those people who don't know, Two years ago, I had a heart attack, had two stents put in and went back racing and at 50 years old, won my first like club championship. So yeah, you can, you can do it, people. It's not too late. And I'm not, the quick, I'm not the quickest guy out there. I, I'm, I'm not bad, but yeah, it's it's definitely doable. So yeah, well, thanks, man, for um, for coming on. And uh, is there anything you think, anything we missed or? I think we've pretty well covered most of it. Um, but anyone who's listening to this, Get along to your local club because that's going to be your best source of information. Go to a club day, um, speak to the drivers, sure. get a real good understanding of what you're potentially um, in for because it makes that transition a lot easier. And I'm sure any club out there will be happy to point you in the right direction. Yeah, that's it, man. And are you actually, just real quick, the national rounds in South Australia next weekend, are you guys running that or? Uh, no, we're not. We're going to go up for a look. Um potentially not and i'm being a realistic uh outlook here we're not we're not running at that level so a we yeah, haven't got okay. the budget b we haven't got the speed if we were to go along we'd just be making up the numbers so well we got a we got a national round over here this year for the first time ever we've had national titles here but not around mm -hmm. and i thought about it i was like just and it was mainly just because like i just kind of wanted to see where i was at in a big crowd at a national level and look i know it's going to be like you know down the back somewhere but yeah it's just curious because one thing that um attracts me to that kind of thing man is the big fields like the entries for next weekend man i'm pretty sure it's like i want to say 370 or something 384 like i think they, they last counted or they closed it up wow. so big numbers um and again it's it's a great experience I've, I've done it once i did it again showing my age back in 2000 we had the, the nationals here in south australia um how'd you I go wasn't, <laughs> don't want to talk about it <laughs> oh, okay i'll, I'll talk enough. to you off, off air but it was <laughs> it, I, I was potentially a top 10 front runner mechanical failures let me down um yeah it's it's my you know my my sob story that i'm hanging on to 23 years later <laughs> so i haven't let go of it yet um, oh we've all got one of them but it's a it's a great experience but Again, but at least, even, even though you had mechanical failure, man, at least you kind of you knew where your pace was at. Top ten nationally, man, that's fucking nothing to sneeze at. Trust me. Yeah. So anyway, it's one one thing to uh, yeah. to say what could have been, but you know yeah. you can get caught up in traffic. You can have an incident that's not your fault. There's 101 scenarios, but yeah, I'm thinking I'm probably going to do another year or two, and then I'll have a crack at a national round. I won't do yeah. the whole series, but I get my speed like uh, up a bit better i'm slowly getting better and then i before i retire it's something i definitely want to do just to yeah tick off the bucket list yeah that's it all right man 
thanks for uh coming on the podcast man on your uh 20th anniversary no even much this and actually, got an I understanding should, wife i was just gonna say i should actually be thinking lisa not you <laughs> yeah, so anyway it's that's, that's fine it's um happy to no. be here i'm sure everybody's worked out now i like the sound of my own voice so it has dragged out a little bit longer than you normally like to keep it but um no nah, it's good man it was all quality info and that's why i hit you up because i knew you'd, you'd have a lot of good info that i didn't know so yeah so, no it's been awesome all right man thanks very thanks very much and i'll uh i'll see you monday night for the f4s <laughs> all right see you on track thanks ira thanks man appreciate it Cheers. By being a racing driver means you are racing with other people. And if you no longer go for a gap that exists, you're no longer a racing driver.